Psalm 77. I cry aloud, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyeballs open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I considered the days of old. The years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made diligent, diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Joseph and Jacob. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen. If you weren't able to open your Bible already, please turn to Psalm 77. Thank you for reading, Mike. And by the way, before I start, Bruce, are you in here? Did he slip out? Back there? Buddy, thank you for being humble enough to say, my guitar's out of tune. That was just so refreshing. Um, we're, we're not performing up here. You weren't. I'm not. We're here to celebrate the Lord. So thank you for your humility. So grateful for that. There, there's a real freedom to being a church and leading a church and serving in a church where the people up on stage are not expected to be perfect. And I've told that to so many folks that ask me about my experience in pastoral ministry because they'll say things like, you're pastoring a church you grew up in? Are you, what, are you crazy? Like they know you. Well, yeah, they know me, and that's why I'm entirely safe here. So let's be that kind of church. I want to do that with you, Bruce. Friends, I would argue, as we jump into this text, that in some ways, suffering is harder if you are a Christian, not easier. don't have much of a warm-up this morning. We're going to get right into it. 
Suffering is harder if you are a Christian in some ways, not easier. Why, why do I say that? Well, I say that for the simple reason that the way we experience God as Christians shapes our expectation of God as Christians. So to be a Christian means to be what? A follower of Jesus Christ. Not, not a follower in a Twitter sense where you just like a few of his ideas, but a follower in a all-of-life sense, as I prayed earlier, where you submit every area of your life to the word of his mouth, the law of Christ, such that the truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel govern every realm of your existence as a creature made in the image of your creator. And to follow Jesus in that sense of the word, not a bumper sticker sense, that sense is to know Jesus as the son of God who saves See, the Bible teaches that we're all born in a state of spiritual rebellion and opposition to God. We're we're sinners who deserve nothing but divine judgment. And so it's a miracle of mercy, is it not? That God himself in the person of Jesus died on the cross for you. Bearing in his body the wrath of God against your sin so that you could be justly forgiven of your sin and set free to serve the Lord. We we need a savior. Jesus is that savior. And when we turn away from sin and trust Jesus, not our own good works to save us, we experience what? The favor of God in Christ. The love of God in Christ. The faithfulness of God in Christ, the the graciousness of God in Christ, the compassion of God in Christ in a radically new way. In other words, all of God's divine attributes culminate, they're epitomized, most clearly seen in the person and work of Christ. And therefore experienced by all who choose to follow him. And so if you haven't done that already, friend, Make that choice today before it's too late. Come to Christ. Follow Christ. Why? Acts 4.12, for there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If, If you don't know Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, I exhort you this morning, friend, come to Christ. Come to Christ. And if you are following him and have been following him, if if through faith in him you have experienced the favor of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, well then I'm simply going to observe with Asaph that that creates a dilemma when it comes to our suffering. What's that? If that's who God is, God of favor, love, grace, compassion, then why am I still suffering? What I've experienced of you in the past, Lord, shapes and causes me to expect certain things from you in the present. 
And to be honest, Lord, you're not currently living up to my expectations. And the longer my suffering endures, can you relate to this? The the more I wonder if you really are all that I once believed and experienced you to be. If that's familiar, maybe you haven't fallen completely, Christian, into the abyss of unbelief, but your faith is starting to slip. Doubt is beginning to rise and it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult for you to reconcile your joyful experience of God in the past with your present suffering and apparent silence of God. And that's why, in brief, suffering is often harder if you're a Christian. Not easier. See, if if you're a non-Christian, you don't have the same sort of struggle. I'm not saying you don't suffer. Please don't hear that. I'm simply saying you don't have the same sort of struggle with God. If God... If you believe God is purely a a figment of our imagination or a spiritual power of some kind that can never be truly known, then you don't approach your suffering with any particular expectations of God. And therefore, in the middle of your suffering, God never shatters your expectations. But when you come to know the, the favor and love and grace and compassion of God in Christ, and then you're hit by waves of sorrow, then the very idea of God, let alone remembering his past goodness, just makes your present all the more painful. Does that make sense? That's what's going on in Psalm 77. And Jewish tradition suggests it was, it was written by Asaph, one of King David's worship leaders. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot by way of background, historical context for this song. There are clear elements of individual lament in the first three verses, but there are also corporate undertones of corporate suffering in verses 4 through 9, which suggests that Asaph is suffering along with the entire nation of Israel. Uh, What we do know for sure, friends, is that the spiritual struggle playing out in this lament is not unique to Asaph, and it's not unique to Israel. We face the exact same challenge today. How, How do we reconcile our past experience of God with our present experience of suffering. And, and I, I know enough of the men and women in this room to know that is not a hypothetical question. That's a real question. That, that is a hard question. Some of you drove into church this morning asking that question, whether anybody else knows that. How, how do I, how does this work? How does my past experience of God line up with my present experience of suffering. It it doesn't seem to fit. And and typically, I I like to lay out at the beginning of a sermon the big idea of a text and then make points that support that idea. But today, I want to take a little different, more inductive approach. 
So let's allow Asaph to lead us, church, in understanding two things, really. The, the ground of his present sorrow and the source of his continued faith. The ground of his present sorrow, the source of his continued faith, and how those two things are more connected than we might initially think. Okay, so we'll begin with the ground of his sorrow, the ground of our sorrow. I'm looking here at verses 1 through 9. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me in your Bible. In verses 1 and 2, Asaph bears his soul in a way that I find both disturbing and provoking. It's disturbing because his emotional anguish is on full display. Okay, Asaph's a grown man. He's a mature man. He's a King David kind of man. And he's crying. And his crying is anything but quiet. Notice that. I cry aloud to God. And lest we overlook his desperation, he says it again. I'm, how am I crying? I'm crying aloud to God. Why do I say that's provoking? That single phrase, I cry aloud to God. Because there's a wealth of wisdom in that phrase, friends. Wealth of wisdom, okay? Two things. Notice first, he's crying. He's not drafting a polished petition. Do you, do you realize that the kind of prayers that make it into the Bible are typically not polished petitions? <laughs> they're in the Bible, but they're not an exercise in, in diplomatic formality. I mean, it's, it's anything but that. He's, he's pouring out his breaking heart, all his sorrow, all his turmoil, all his anguish, all, all his doubts and questions. He's, he's not taking his emotional suffering and shoving it in a mental closet because life's too busy or because he's hopeful that if he just ignores his feelings long enough or la, 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 distracts himself long enough that they'll just go away one day. He's being honest. He's being humble. He's not trying to hide his feelings from himself or other people in the name of keeping his man guard. <laughs> he's crying. But he's not just crying aloud to himself in the thin air or to other people. He's what? He's crying aloud to God. <laughs> he's crying to God. So, so what does that tell us? This isn't an exercise in mindfulness. He's not trying to get in touch with his feelings. He's not looking to self-awareness for hope and help. He's looking to God. He's crying to God. He's, he's bringing all of Asaph, all his sorrow, all his turmoil, all his anguish, all his doubts and questions to the living person of his creator. The first move towards sanity in our suffering without question, friend, is crying to God. It's the first move towards sanity. And, and verse 2 says it so well. Don't skip past this quickly. In the day of my trouble, I what? Look at it. I seek the Lord. The day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Are, are, you, are you doing that? Are you doing that right now? Whether your day of trouble feels small or great, are you seeking the Lord? 
Or are you seeking something else? Or someone else? Even something good and instead of seeking the Lord? Sympathetic friends are a gift. But they can't save you. Sexual pleasure feels good, but it can't heal you. Okay, my mind-altering medication may, may punt your pain downfield, but it can't deliver your soul. It won't heal a breaking heart. Friend, in the day of your trouble, there is only one thing to do, and that is to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. That's a promise to you, friend. You seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. He will make sure it happens. So Asaph's seeking the Lord. He's, he's crying aloud to God in his trouble. We've seen that over and over again in the Psalms of Lament. But notice what happens next. Verse 2. And great faith rises in my soul and I ask to join the worship team. No. Verse 2. My soul refuses to be comforted. Say what? That's not, is that even biblical? (laughs) In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord and despite my sorrow, faith rises. That's what I want to say. It's okay. Silence your phones. God's on the throne. Lord, I pray for whoever uh, that young person or older person is that that alert was for. I pray right now you'd protect them. And if that is a legitimate alert, that you would deliver them and save them and rescue them. I pray that in the day of their trouble right now, wherever they are, that they too would seek the Lord. Lord, would you do that in your son's name? Amen. Asaph did that, but his soul refused to be comforted. And I wonder if that surprises you as much as it surprised me, but I think not, because I think some of you, perhaps many of you, know exactly what he means. Right? You you spend time with God. You pour out your troubles to him in prayer. You're deliberately choosing to seek the Lord, but the sorrow in your heart won't go away. In fact, in in Asaph's case, it seems to get worse. Look at verse 3. It just gets worse. When I remember God, I what? I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I mean, unless we think he's exaggerating, verse 4 gives us even more detail. When When he remembers, when he meditates and thinks about God, it keeps him from sleeping. 
So much so that, it, that it's as if God is holding his eyelids open. So, so trouble compelled him to seek the Lord, compelled him to cry aloud to God. But as soon as he does that, his grief actually increases to the point where he's so troubled, he can't even speak anymore. What do you do with that? Why can't he speak? Why is the ground of his sorrow growing as a result of seeking the Lord? Look at verse 5. It's growing because all Asaph thinks about when he first remembers God is what? The days of old, the years long ago. It's like he pulls a, a scrapbook off the shelf. And he opens it up and just starts flipping through the pages. And he sees the pictures He sees the memories. He recalls all that the Lord did for him and for his family and for his children and how good life was and how the blessing of God seemed tangible and real and the Lord felt near and compassionate. A time when God was favorable, when he knew the Lord loved him and he loved him back. To borrow the words of the old hymn, it was a time when it was well with his soul. And his heart and mouth were filled with songs of joy, even in the night, not songs of sorrow. And that that memory, that sweet memory of what his experience of God was like, years ago. What what did that do? That made his present experience of sorrow all the more painful. It was painful by comparison. I mean, no doubt his present suffering would hurt if he didn't have the comparison. It would hurt regardless of his past experience, but his past experience, the kinds of songs he used to sing multiplied his present pain to the breaking point. So what does he say? When I remember God, verse three, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And so the more diligently he remembers his past experiences of God, the more these doubts and questions just begin circling his mind like vultures waiting to pounce on whatever remaining seeds of faith are still in his soul. Verse seven. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? And are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I am all too familiar with those questions. And I think many of you are too. It's the sort of thing we think, but but dare not speak aloud. Why not? Because it feels scandalous. You're you're terrified that if you even speak those words, verses 7 through 9, they'll come true. And the entire scaffolding of your faith will just come crumbling down into the rubble of unbelief 
you, you try perhaps to hold those, those doubts, those questions. You try to hold them at arm's length by staying busy. But they refuse to depart. And, and instead, the more you try to hold them at bay in your mind and heart, the more they press closer. It's like a tide, a flood of water just rushing through the walls of your faith as suffering keeps opening up cracks all around. Friends, if you can relate to that, please hear this. What Asaph was doing in verses 7 through 9 was not wrong. It wasn't wrong. It was exceedingly human, exceedingly wise, and exceedingly glorifying to God. It's called the way of lament. And ultimately, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Hear that. Think think about this. How would unbelief rewrite Verses 7 through 9. Well, unbelief would declare the Lord will spurn forever. He is not favorable. He is not a God of steadfast love, nor does he fulfill his promises. He is not gracious, and he certainly is not compassionate. That's what unbelief would say. So what what does faith say? Faith says, Lord, I've known you as a God who shows favor to your people, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. Where are you? Lord, I've, I've known you as a God of steadfast love, but, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. Where are you? I've known you as a God who keeps your promises, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. Where are you? I've known you as a God who's compassionate and gracious, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. Where in the world are you? It's the presence of faith, friends, that gives rise to questions like that. Why? Because every one of them presupposes and believes, even in part, something true about the character of God. And the implicit answer to all those questions is what? An emphatic, no! No, so on one level, Asaph knows steadfast love, by definition. Can that cease? No. He he knows a faithful God, by definition, can't break his promises. A gracious God, by definition, can't forget his own grace. The compassion of the Lord is unfailing, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't feel it. And so he struggled. So do I. So do you. But don't move quickly past that lament. Because it is grace for you in the hour of your sorrow. Because if Asaph didn't have some measure of genuine faith in the Lord, he wouldn't struggle at all. The questions of a faith that wrestles with doubt would be replaced by the conclusions of an unbelief that flat out denies the Lord. So think about it. A biblical lament rejects the latter, the the denial of unbelief, by giving voice to the former, the questions of faith. And in so doing, Asaph proves that he still takes God at his word. So important, friends. If in your suffering... You refuse to voice verse 7 through 9 kinds of questions 
to God. You have ceased relating with the Lord as a person. And you have cut yourself off from a means of grace for your soul, the way of lament. And so in summary, verses 1 through 9 reveal what? A man whose faith in God, and in particular, his past experience of God, make his present sorrow all the more painful. And, and the gulf, the gap between his experience of God in the past and his experience of God in the present compels him to cry out, Lord, are you done being that kind of God for me? So the ground of his sorrow is real. And it's, and it's deep. But then look at verse 10. Something happens here that's remarkable. And hear this before you think, oh, now he's going to tell me why I should feel good. We're going to see in the second half of this psalm doesn't take away any of his pain. But it does strengthen Asaph's faith in the midst of his pain. There's a difference. Look at verse 10 through 12. Then I said, Asaph, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And it is here, friends, that we discover the surprising source of his faith. The surprising source of his faith, verses 10 through 20. So think carefully with me here, okay? What, what gave rise to the agonizing lament, the doubt, the wrestling in verses 7 through 9? What's verses 5 through 6? Remembering the difference, the gap, right, between what God did in the past and what he seemed to be doing or rather not doing in the present. So here's the question. What's about to give rise to the bold expressions of faith in verses 13 through 15. What's verses 11 and 12? Remembering what God did in the past. So check this out. In other words, the past works of God that intensified his sorrow were the same works of God that strengthened his faith. Does that make sense? The past works of God that by contrast intensified his present sorrow were the same works of God that God used to strengthen his faith even more. Okay, so think, think of it this way. Because we don't tend to think like this. Okay, that the gap, the chasm between the reality of his past, the reality of his present was real. What did Asaph do with the gap? He lamented his sorrow accordingly. But something else was no less real than the gap. Namely, the undeniable reality of the past. And not just the past in an individual sense. That the past in a corporate sense. Look at verse 11 and 12. The, the what? The deeds of the Lord, the wonders of old, verse 11. The work of the Lord and his mighty deeds in verse 12. They're not going to be limited in the rest of this psalm to Asaph's individual experience of God in his own lifetime. Okay, so in verses 13 through 20, he's going to reach back even further to century after century after century of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. 
seen primarily in the salvation of their exodus from Egypt. Friends, we must not allow the gap between what we know God has done in the past and what we feel like God's doing in the present to keep us from remembering and pondering and meditating on the past. Don't do that. And here's why. Here's why. If you, if you hear nothing else this morning from me, hear this. Who God has objectively revealed himself to be throughout the pages of redemptive history is an infinitely more reliable, far more certain, and significantly more secure foundation on which to build our faith than our subjective perception of him in our present suffering. That doesn't mean our present sorrow isn't real. Or that the gap between our past and present experiences of God isn't real. Faith laments the gap. But the kind of faith that endures to the end isn't built on the shifting sand of human perception. It's built on the eternal rock of divine revelation. So faith laments the gap. But faith isn't destroyed by the gap because it's not built on what we can presently perceive of God's saving activity. It's built on what God has decisively revealed about his saving activity. Where's God done that? Where's God revealed his saving activity? To Asaph, what happens to be the same place that he reveals his saving activity to us. It's in the pages of his word. So Asaph's about to go historical Not hysterical. <laughs> Let's follow him. He surveys his Bible. By the way, what would have been Asaph's Bible? First five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Right? Maybe some other things, but at least that. Okay? And as he sur- surveys his Bible, what's he compelled to conclude? Look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So so from his response to sin in Eden to his his judgment of Uzzah in Jerusalem and everything in between, one thing is clear, okay? All God does in the world, all his activity in the world is a perfect reflection of his moral purity. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't do wrong. God only does what is right. He cannot do otherwise. He'd cease to be God. And nor does he tolerate those who try to do otherwise. What else does Asaph see? Verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. What's he see there? Well, from delivering Joseph to destroying Jericho. Okay, the Lord's unwavering commitment to glorify his name in the eyes of the watching world is on full display in the Old Testament. But but he isn't just a God who who makes known his might to every nation in a general sense. He's a God who in a particular way makes his might known to a particular nation, Israel, in a very personal sense. So look at verse 15. You with your arm redeemed your people. 
You redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And and Asaph can think of no greater act of redemption, no, no better example of the saving work of God on behalf of the people of God than the exodus. It's it's held up throughout the Bible as as a type, as a case study of God's power to save. So so listen to Exodus 14. In case you're not familiar with what happened, Israel is trapped between the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt. Hear this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 26, Stretch out your hand over the sea. That the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw or shook off, to translate it more literally, the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That was a miracle. It's a miracle. And in verses 16 through 18, Asaph celebrates and remembers the power God demonstrated on that day, in particular, God's power over the forces of nature. What does he say, verse 16? When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. I don't know about you, but when I get close to the ocean, I tremble. (laughs) I don't make the deep (laughs) tremble. And we, and we have to remember here that, that in the ancient world, the sea was what? What was the sea? What was a symbol of chaos and destruction? But, but on that day, for Israel, it wasn't just a symbol. It was reality, right? The, the Red Sea was an insurmountable wall, impressing Israel back toward a life of slavery and suffering. All, all hope of human deliverance was lost. You had death by sword on one side, death by drowning on the other side, and you and your wife and your kids in the middle. So what did God do? Look at verse 19. What did God do? Don't read this quickly. Friends, he, he made a way where there was no way. He made a way of salvation. Your, your way, whose way? God's way, was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Think about that. 
It wasn't Moses' way. It wasn't Israel's way. It was God's way, God's path. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord, not of man. Israel couldn't save herself. Israel didn't need to save herself. Why? God saved her because God is a redeeming God. That's who he is. Brothers and sisters, what the Lord has done for us through the person and work of his son is no different than that. It's no different. Okay? In fact, the great salvation that Israel experienced in the midst of her suffering was what? It was a type, a foretaste of a far greater salvation that God worked on another day thousands of years later. Except on that day, he didn't make a way through the temporal chaos of the sea. He made a way through the eternal damnation of your sin. And his footprints on that day were no longer unseen. They were visible. They left a trail of blood leading all the way to the cross. They weren't hidden. They were seen. And on that day, Jesus Christ worked the greatest miracle of salvation that the world has ever known. Ever known. God died on that day. God died. So you wouldn't have to. He bore your sins. He carried your sorrows. He he triumphed over the power of death so that suffering would not get the final word in your life. He proved on that day, friends, to be a good shepherd. And so as Moses and Aaron led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and to the promised land, Jesus Christ, in an even greater way, leads us out of slavery to sin and home to heaven. It's a far greater Redemption. And so remembering the Exodus did what for Asaph? It strengthened his confidence that the God who delivered his forefathers in their suffering could be trusted to deliver him in his suffering. And brothers and sisters, I would simply point out to you this morning that we have a far better memory than Egypt. A far better anchor for the soul. A far better eternal proof and guarantee that despite our present perception, those who hope in the Lord, Psalm 25, will never be put to shame. So we, so we look to Christ in our suffering. We remember the gospel in our suffering and we refuse to stop trusting Jesus until the day he brings us home. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friend, you remember that in your suffering. You don't forget that. That's going to get you home. 
all the way home. So remember this, hear this, listen to this. We don't trust God because of our subjective perception of his saving activity in the midst of our present sorrow. We trust God because of what he has objectively revealed about his saving activity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's through remembering and, and pondering and, and meditating on the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus that we find strength to trust him even in situations we don't understand. I, I love how Oz Guinness connects these dots as we prepare to conclude. Listen carefully. Christians do not say, I do not understand you at all. God, but I trust you anyway. Rather, we say, I do not understand you in this situation. But I understand why I trust you anyway. Therefore, I can trust that you understand, even though I don't. If we don't know why we trust God in the beginning, then we'll always need to know exactly what God is doing in order to trust him. Failing to grasp that, we may not be able to continue trusting him. For anything we do not understand may count decisively against what we are able to trust. If, on the other hand, we do know why we trust God, we will be able to trust him in situations where we do not understand what he is doing. So so why do we ultimately trust God? in the midst of our suffering. We trust God for this simple reason, church, that he has redeemed us. That's the answer. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. If Asaph had good reason to trust the Lord, you, friend, and I have far more. And so the beauty of Psalm 77 is that the very ground of Asaph's sorrow, the past deeds of the Lord, became the precious source of his faith. And and there are times, because our situation is no different, where remembering our past experience of God's goodness in the past makes our present suffering all the more painful. But please hear this. Within that greater sorrow, within those very acts of remembrance, lies the key to an even greater faith. That's his point. For it's in God's revelation of himself in the past, first and foremost in the gospel through which our faith is strengthened. So think of it this way. The way of lament turns the ground of our sorrow into the source of our faith. That's the point. That's the big idea. I saved it till the end. There you have it. The way of lament does what? It turns the ground of our sorrow, the contrast between the past and our present, by remembering the past into the source of our faith. So my exhortation to you, friends, is very, very simple. Embrace the painful pleasure of lament. Remember the deeds of the Lord. Ponder his work. Meditate on his mighty deeds first and foremost in Christ. And the key to doing that is really quite simple. You have to open your Bible. 
It's very simple. Open your Bible and read it. Linger on the examples of how God saves his people when they can't save themselves. Tell God, even through tears, how hard the gap is between past experience and present experience. And and as you lament your suffering, expect God through his word to take the ground of your sorrow and turn it into the source of your faith. Why? Because of Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that as we take some time to linger in song now, that you would use memories of the past, both in our life and in the life of your people, and particularly what we read of your saving activity through Christ, in your word, and all that you've promised us in Jesus, I pray that those very memories that for some of us make the present so painful would, as we sing, be turned by your spirit into the source of our faith. King Jesus, only you can take the ground of sorrow and make it the source of faith. And you're good at that. Though, Lord, you so often seem to do that a lot slower than I would prefer. But you're faithful to do it. And so I pray now as we sing to you about things that make sense and things that do not, that you would turn our gaze to the past, to your footprints walking up the hill to Calvary, and you would take our ever-so-forgetful hearts And remind us why we can trust you. Amen.